Welcome back to the Theology of the Body podcast, a podcast for Catholics who love tradition and want more of it. This is episode 54. My name is Chris, and I'm joined today by my youthful co-hosts, Mike and Brooke. And today, we are discussing the mystical significance of the Roman Missal. It's going to be a really good one. I hope you guys really like it. Anyways, my friends, Hello there. it has been forever since we've been on a podcast together. How are you guys doing? Yeah, it's, it's been so long. Apparently, you forgot that I'm really old. That's true. Not youthful at all. My, my voice is aged. <laughs> it's been 84 years since I was last on a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I just watched a Titanic documentary. That's funny. At least you're not sounding like you smoke like three packs a day. I read an article today that says that supposedly they did a like experiment or whatever, a test in France that said that if you are a smoker, supposedly you uh, are less likely to get the coronavirus. I think it's just the French people being like, do not take away my cigarette. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's racist to say. Sorry, France friends. I wonder if it has to do with like the buildup of chemicals on the inside of the lungs or something that prevents the virus from like clinging. I don't know what the science there are know. a lot of smokers in France, anecdotally, when I was there. Yeah. Like, is it a culture? 15 thing? years ago. Yeah, they say it's almost a quarter of the population are smokers in, yeah. oh, wow. in France. It's way more popular than here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, supposedly they're, um, they're testing nicotine patches on COVID patients. I heard that. Supposedly. So yeah. interesting, right? <laughs> anyway, guys. Yeah. Besides that, besides the fact that you've aged terribly, how are you? (laughs) We're doing all right. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today was a good day. Yeah, yeah. I go day by day now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tomorrow will be terrible. (laughs) How can you say that you'll go day by day and now now you're already on to tomorrow? (laughs) I'm just setting myself up to be prepared for misery. And then if it's great, then I'll be pleasantly surprised. You need to get help, Brooke. You need help. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know what tomorrow will be. I'm working out tomorrow, so I get my workout in. That usually helps. Nice. Nice. That at least means it's a somewhat good day. As long as you get the workout in, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, it also helped that today in Ontario, well, in this part of Ontario, it was like 20 degrees Celsius, which is so like- nice. 70 probably the nicest day of the year so far yeah 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 Yeah, and we got to spend a bunch of time playing outside with the kids it's really nice yeah yeah i actually got to go for a really long walk and we saw our friends cam and katie shout out to them cam cam has asked you guys we really and everyone from church (laughs) (laughs) cam suggested that we um we make t-shirts as a podcast because uh, right now the Canadian dollar is so, so darn terrible. And uh, so anybody in Canada who listens to like American Catholic podcasts is paying like $50 for a t-shirt right now. So what? yeah, it's crazy with shipping and stuff. It's nuts. Wow. So uh, yeah, yeah, maybe we should and make it. it takes a, like three years to ship to you. Yeah. Across the border. 
So he he suggests we needed to get on making some t-shirts. So we'll have to we'll have to continue in our uh, updates of different designs that we that we've come up with and share them on our stories and see if we can gain some interest. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so without further ado, Brooke, tell us about your experience today with another fellow Catholic podcaster. Yeah. So shout out to Lindsay from the Modern Lady podcast. Um, happy birthday, Ben. I designed a special drawing for uh, her little boy. So he just turned eight, I believe. And obviously he's in quarantine. Like everybody's in the self-isolation, right? So no birthday parties, which would suck as a kid, right? You know, mm-hmm. you look forward to your birthday every year. And uh, yeah, so I designed a special special picture of him with his favorite video game character. And and uh, it was very well received. And she drove all the way here to pick it up. So it was really cool to actually put a face to the voice, like in person. And we exchanged beer and brownies for cake and more bread. And it was great. And we really hope that uh, we can have a modern lady podcast, Theology with the Buddy barbecue with a slip and slide. You know. The slip and slide was my idea for the record. We're going to say it's for the kids. We're going to say it's for the kids, but. It's really for Chris. Yeah. (laughs) Get me all like lathered up in soap and just send me flying. No, no, no. What what did they use in um, in, uh, Christmas Vacation? Pam? It was the uh, cereal coating. <laughs> cereal varnish. <laughs> if yeah. you did that here, you would go straight through the fence and like <laughs> over the train tracks, over the bridge, into, into the, the river. river. <laughs> Be like, there goes Chris. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I felt so bad for them when they got here because over an hour drive and they got all the kids in the van they're probably all cooped up and it was such a nice day and I was just like this virus is the worst because these kids should be unleashed and running around the backyard and having a great time Yeah, and here we are like you know sending them away <laughs> and you know it, and it, it's kind of, um, I don't want to say awkward, but it's just like, I want to give you a hug, but I can't because germs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a super huggy person, but I do like giving hugs, especially for those, I don't know, big special meetups. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, there's so much on both sides of the conversation right now. Like I was talking with Cam today about how everything is exploding in the United States. There's protests everywhere. Joyfield family, uh, shout out to them. They're on Instagram. They're a great trad family. They got involved in the protests in Sacramento. Like, I mean, they're just, Uh people are fighting these lockdowns. Even, um, I can't remember the other canons name from, uh, St. Joseph's, uh, shrine in Detroit. But even today, he was saying, like, the mortality rate is far lower than what they're reporting. And, uh, you know, we need, we need to, like, 
get this country back on its feet. We need to have our masses restored. We need to have the sacraments restored. Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, right? There's, there's so many conflicting views right now. Yeah. Yeah. Michigan is crazy too, because they've had some outrageous restrictions. The, uh, I thought the seed thing was hilarious. Yeah. Like they're not allowed to plant their gardens. Like here we're about to get our garden in this month. And I mean, they're also saying there's going to be a bunch of food shortages and stuff too, because of the economic impact, right? Like all kinds of different foods are uh, going to become harder to get. And some of them are frankly things you could be growing in your backyard, like potatoes. But yeah. Why Michigan? Why, why do you do this? This is week two of us not even be able to buy flour. Flour. Like not just normal small bags. I buy industrial sized bags of flour. Mm-hmm. I eat a lot of bread. <laughs> I know I don't look it, but I love bread. <laughs> not sure I do look it, but I, I make a lot of food with flour. I can't buy a 20 bag pound a 20 pound bag of flour. Just can't. Or any bags of flour. Or any bags of flour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We haven't been able to find yeast at the grocery store. Um, we you just order it online. But. I've looked for it on, on Amazon. It's like so expensive. So expensive. I'm not yeah. going the Amazon route. No way. Got some beer yeast. Did you? Started a, started a batch of beer today. Make beer and cheese bread. Make beer and cheese bread. You don't have to add cheese. I'm sure you could just use the beer. It's got yeast in it. Just beer bread. You yeah. still need flour, though. That's true. But if you have the flour, <laughs> she's like, you don't have any yeast. She's like, make beer and cheese bread. You don't have flour. So just drink beer. Just drink beer. <laughs> don't make bread. Just drink beer. You heard it here first. <laughs> okay. Well, this podcast is right on track. Yes, it is. Yes, you have is. to start with a with a lighthearted note. That's yeah. what people like, right? I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Lighthearted notes about how the world's ending and pandemics everywhere and mm. there's no food. And there's giant bees, <laughs> giant yeah. hornets. Yeah. Murder murder yeah. hornets. Yeah. Pretty yeah. sure that's the next uh apocalyptic sign. Killer yep. insects. Yep. Yep. Pretty sure I actually saw one of the murder hornets here. Uh, freaked me out. It's huge hornet. Huge. Yeah. Freaked that is me out. So, so unbelievably scary. <laughs> we live in Canada. We don't have big bugs in Canada. Are you kidding? Yes, we do. That's why we live in the snow. It's supposed to kill the big bugs. Oh. Okay, monarch butterflies are big, but they're not scary. Yeah, Two-inch like, killer bees, well, hornets, they kill other bees. Have you whatever. been in northern Ontario before? Like like the black yeah. flies? Those things could eat like a horse. They're huge. <laughs> huge. <laughs> there are people out in Saudi Arabia listening. They're like, they haven't seen a camel spider before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the people in the Amazon, they're laughing too. Because there's bird-eating spiders, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Speaking of the Amazon, too, Could just a random side note. Uh, according to a source I read today, 
Brazil is saying that they are setting themselves up, it seems, to be the worst hit country for the coronavirus. What? Um, yeah, which wow. is the Amazon region, for the record. Um, it mm. sucks. Mm. It sucks. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, Pachamama worship doesn't defer the uh, the onslaught of coronavirus. Like it just it takes yeah, it takes no prisoners. Italy would have been safe. Yeah. Too. Exactly. Anyway. On that note, anyway, speaking, speaking don't about, tell Twitter because uh, um, <laughs> leftist Catholic Twitter is up in arms about how coronavirus can't be a chastisement from God because that's not how it works. Apparently, it could be, it could be. I'm not let's, saying it is, but it could be. Let's be honest. All of us Catholics are really perfidious. We are. Well, we're perfidious in one sense. But the Jews and Muslims are perfidious in a different sense. <laughs> Let's talk about that. So, yeah. An yeah, important clarification for we, from our Good Friday conversation. We did some some reading about this, just a tiny bit. I'm not saying I'm an expert on it, but yeah, on our Good Friday discussion, we talked about how the word perfidin or perfidus, perfidus. Anyways. Um, it's applied to Jews and Muslims. <laughs> and um, in English, we have a word perfidious that has perfidious as its root. But apparently, and this was clarified by um, Pope Pius Twelfth, that um, perfidious, when it's used in the Good Friday prayers, is meant in the sense of um, faithless or unfaithful rather than perfidious, which generally means um, untrustworthy, deceitful, that kind of thing. Right. So there's a lot of, apparently when they removed that from the prayers, the reasoning given by John the 23rd was, even though it actually means faithless and it's an accurate description of those who don't hold the true faith it's caused so many problems because people are accusing the church of anti-semitism and calling jews deceitful and untrustworthy and being racist and stuff like that um so yeah all of that we didn't really know when we were talking about the good friday pre-55 prayers that was a few podcasts ago yeah like four or five something like that yeah Yeah, exactly yeah that was the um uh divine mercy for modernists right is that it that was what that was yeah (laughs) anyways so that's the clarification there is i think the way the church actually intended the latin prayers is not racist and it's actually accurate even though it is still kind of a burn I I appreciate that clarification because I yeah I don't know I I I don't know if I still I mean I think still it's an act of treachery to uh, abandon the Messiah you know like yeah you could say like especially for the Jewish people because they were the chosen people and 
the Messiah came to them and they rejected him, that that was an act of treachery. Yeah. I'm not an expert, but how does that apply that. to the Muslims? Not exactly sure. I don't know. I don't know. I do understand how faithless makes intuitive sense instantly. Yeah. 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 That does make sense. All right. Well, shall we shift gears? Yeah. Nice. We're talking about the epistle and the missile. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about the mystical significance of the missile. For the record, we'll include the link in the show notes. Um, There is a fantastic talk, um, homily, I'm pretty sure, uh, from... Yeah, no, it was a homily. From... Caritas uh, Veritas or Veritas Caritas, whatever it is, um, amazing. And we won't do it justice on this podcast, so please go and listen to that. But um, we're just going to add a little bit of commentary on that, um, and yeah, share our it's, thoughts. Uh, Census Fidelium on YouTube, right? That's where they reposted it. it. Yeah, but it oh, was okay. originally from it was originally from uh, Caritas Veritas or whatever it's called. Yeah. Okay, my mistake. It was so cool. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's one of my favorite talks from this priest, um, bar none. I've, I listen to it almost every year. I love it. Um, okay. So let's, let's take a quick, uh, a quick jot here over to the liturgy. Before we do that, hold on. Yeah, I want to shout out our friend from Instagram, Joanna. I told her that we would shout her out probably about seven podcasts ago and like we just kind of keep getting sidetracked so let me find it here Joanna's the best she is so she said um she commented listening to your episode 45 you were so that tells you how long ago this was that was almost 10 episodes ago nine episodes she says you are guessing about the number of steps to the altar i've heard it heard it described as four steps into the sanctuary and three steps to the high altar representing the cardinal and theological virtues respectively though i don't know where you'd find a source for this she says her source is anya our good friend anya i miss her we love you anya i miss you a lot i miss you anna and anya Mm -hmm. i want to feed them both bread when i get flour again what 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 do you say to to her when she does something very respectable? Good Anya. Good Anya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Our so, dad joke brains were on the same wavelength. There. That's right. <laughs> I blame you. I blame you. You've been training me for this my whole life. Yep. Well, Pretty at much. least half of it now. Yeah. Couldn't be your whole life because you're older than me. Yeah. Yeah. Not by much, though. <laughs> All right. Let's switch gears again. Mystical significance of the missile. So, the missile, right? That big, usually red book that is placed on the altar during the liturgy in the, in the traditional Latin mass. That's what we're talking about. In, in the Novus Ordo, there is there's the sacramentary, I guess, and then there's the lectionary. Two separate books, 
The lectionary is what's ca- carried up in procession, right? It's carried up in procession to the um, to the ambo, um, and then there's the essentially what is like the Roman Missal, which is like the sacramentary that they would use for uh, just the prayers uh, during the mass. But in the traditional Latin mass, there is the Missal Romanum, which is which is basically the the sacramentary. Um, so what is the missal? Uh, according to, uh, this priest from Veritas Caritas, the missal symbolizes the adoration given to God. Um, it is, it represents our loving submission of our whole being to him. Um, which I, I didn't really know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, me neither. One of the essential parts of understanding the importance of the missile can only be understood in the context of ad orientum worship without that without the context of ad orientum everything goes out the door um so now that we have the nova sordo it doesn't really matter at this point because the directions of where things go are are kind of a moot point, right? Um, so in the traditional Latin yeah. mass, right, the everything is done on one altar, right? Like in the Novus Ordo, you have what they call the ambo. Some people call it the altar of the word. Um, and then there's the altar of sacrifice or the altar of, of the Eucharist. And then there would be the altar of repose, which is the separate altars, you know, dedicated to uh, the Blessed Sacrament. We've talked about this before, I think, in, in one of our podcasts, that the Novus Ordo kind of chopped apart the altars uh, or the altar and split it into multiple pieces. But in the traditional Latin Mass, typically, and I say this because there are exceptions to this, like, for example, St. Peter's in Rome, typically the altar is, it's all one one piece, right? Yeah, everything's all there in one Right. Um, so, ad orientum. Just a quick crash course on it. Do you guys want to explain what ad orientum is? Yeah. So that's worship towards the liturgical east, so to speak. Right. right. So, yeah. Essentially, I mean, I don't think the church necessarily has to literally face east, but it's the liturgical east where the altar and tabernacle are so are it's the focal point of the mass and our worship is directed towards our lord in the tabernacle and that's where the altar is right um and a lot of the symbolism with the missal revolves around this concept of east and um using that as your anchor point and then there's symbology based on the north, south, east, and west. It it's based on facing toward the sunrise. Is that right? The well, east. Well, yeah, right. Like, I mean, our Lord Himself came from the east, um, mm-hmm. and that's where He's going to return in the end. Is in the east. So, as the as the people of God, we face towards the coming Lord, and that is east. And again, this is not a practice that's uh, new, per se. 
you know, even the Jews, even today, when they go to pray the Shema Israel, they will turn literally east and pray towards the east. I'm not sure if Muslims, if they do that too, um, but but Jews definitely they face towards the uh, they face towards Mecca, yeah, the uh, Kaaba, which there's all kinds of implications around that. I mean, we would probably say that it's a form of pagan idolatry that's snuck in there. The fact that they turn towards this black stone that is a pagan idol. But anyways, that is, there's a form of liturgical orientation in Mecca or in Islam, but it's toward Mecca. Right. So yeah, that's kind of the, I would say one of the most important parts of this podcast is understanding the importance of ad orientum that um that when the church has typically prayed she has always prayed facing east um and at least liturgically um and uh, so when the the church you know grew in her understanding and in her theology um especially in her sacramental theology liturgical theology whatever yeah, this this began to grow um and uh so where things were placed on the altar had significance so at the beginning of the mass the uh the roman missal is placed on if you're facing the altar like if you're looking at it straight on which you are because yeah. it's at orientum <laughs> Yeah, it would be to our, what would be our right. And so this is called the epistle side because the epistle <laughs> is read from this side. This side of the altar symbolizes, well, it would technically be the south side of the altar. Um, yeah. and it's Liturgical symbol- south, so to speak. Yeah. And it symbolizes the Jewish people, right? It's... I I kind of it's kind of funny like I think about it geographically and it's a little bit funny but it's kind of like Jerusalem in the south and Europe in the north kind of like the the pagans of Europe is kind of like what's imagined there I think yeah yeah so the south side represents the Jewish people when the priest comes to this side of the altar uh and proclaims the epistle he he will cover his head so he'll use the beretta and he will cover his head similar to the jews the jews when they uh when they pray they cover their head this represents uh in a big way that their mind is veiled to the mystery of faith and to the mystery of the messiah and uh, the mystery of redemption um, because of their own rejection of the Messiah, is it is it a reference to like the Jews rejecting the Messiah, or is it a reference to the pre-Messianic Jews who hadn't had the revelation yet? Well, I guess. I, I was thinking of like the Old Testament, but usually it's 
New Testament epistles that are read right. from the epistle side. Sometimes it's Old Testament occasionally, right? Yeah. But on rare occasions. Not usually. Yeah. I guess one thing maybe to interject with is, I mean, most of our listeners are probably following right along, but we haven't really talked about the epistle in our liturgical breakdown at all. Right. So we could quickly mention sure. what's the epistle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you're thinking of the Novus Ordo, it's basically uh, equivalent to your second reading in Novus Ordo land. I guess they have kind of split the Alleluia and gradual away from each other and put the epistle in between and then put an Old Testament reading before it for the first and second. But anyways, yeah, that's that whole structure of um, scripture reading, not from the Gospels, and then Psalms, and then reading from the Gospel is ancient um, in the Christian liturgy. I know for a fact Augustine has written about it, so it's probably apostolic or near apostolic, that structure of preparing for the Eucharistic liturgy. But anyways, usually that first reading, even from the earliest times, has been from the letters of St. Paul and the other apostles. So that's why it's called the epistle, or that's Greek for letter, right? Yeah. So, I found a nice little excerpt here, if I could share. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So this is from the book. This is the Mass. Um, we have. Uh, That's by Fulton Sheen, right? Yes. As described by Henry Daniel Rupps, as celebrated by Fulton J. Sheen, and it's photographed. Anyway, um, this is from the chapter seven, the reading in God's name, the Epistle. It breaks down the Mass actually quite beautifully and with gorgeous pictures. The first passage, which is ordinarily read, is the epistle. As the name epistola indicates, it is a passage from a letter. On Sundays, this apostolic letter is almost always taken from the writings of the Apostle Paul. On other occasions, on Saints' Days, on Latin Ferias, and on Ember Days, it is generally from the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. That instruction is proposed to us in the reading, which is then termed lectio or lesson, whatever its source may happen to be. Evidently, in either case, the liturgical purpose is the same, for it shows that in the beginning God speaks to us by the agency of intermediaries, by the mouth of men who are his witnesses or confessors who are inspired by him to prepare us that way we may later receive his own message directly. And for this reason, the reading is done in the name of the Lord. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, for sure. So now you know exactly when they do readings from the Old Testament are specific yeah. times yeah um just as an as a side note with regards to the um the number of readings according to dom garanger he says that the custom of reading only one epistle in the mass is not of the number of those which were in use in the primitive church yet it dates back at least a thousand years uh, in the early ages there was read first a lesson from the old testament after which followed some passage selected from the apostolic writings right so yeah um so 
when you hear, especially with regards to the Novus Ordo, that they wanted to go back to the sources with the liturgy and and with their theology and things, um, they would cite this as part of their uh, rationale for uh, restoring this. Like, he's not sure why we had to lose that. Um, he even says that, like, um, quote, we have been losers by the change for each mass. Each mass had its proper preface, whereas now the number of these liturgical compositions is reduced to a minimum. So there was there was extra readings. There was a preface for every single mass instead of it being like, you know, a preface for Eastertide, a preface for Pentecost, you know, um, they would have a preface for every single mass, which is kind of cool. Was this in um, pre-Gregory? Or- yeah, it would have been. Prob- well, no, I don't think, well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe Pius the fifth anyway. Yeah. He says a thousand years. So yeah. it would be after Gregory, but not yeah. Pius the fifth. Exactly. I don't I, know. I'd be interested to know when that changed. It says for a long period, uh, the first Sunday of Advent retain- retained its privilege of having two epistles in the mass. At, la- at last, it also was to have but one. Yeah, it doesn't actually say here. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of a cool, cool little side note. Okay, so coming back to the the epistle. So again, that veiling of the mind to the mystery of Christ, right? To the mystery of of redemption and to the mystery of faith because of their rejection of Christ. So this is even alluded to in the last gospel, which of course we'll we'll mention at the final episode of the liturgical breakdown which will happen in 5000 years um <laughs> but uh it's mentioned in uh the gospel of saint john chapter 1 verses 11 where it says he came unto his own and his own received him not so because of that right because of that rejection of christ by the jews the mystery of faith is taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles, right? to the nations, ad gentes, as it is in Latin. And so the missile itself is moved to what would be considered the north side of the altar, right? So the north side represents the Gentiles. Um, that was what kind of blew my mind when I was listening to this video. Um, cause I, I had never heard that before. It's kind of a newbie Latin mass goer. I never knew the reasons why epistle side was on the right and gospel side was on the left, but yeah, all kind of mirroring the narrative of salvation history through the movement of the missile it's really cool and that's kind of what it is right like as we're stepping through the liturgy we're going through salvation history mm-hmm. first we are with the jews um god's chosen people where he first reveals himself and then at that point in history where 
Um, the Messiah comes to the Jews. He's rejected. The um, message of the gospel goes out to the nations, to the Gentiles. Um, yeah, the liturgy follows that by literally shifting the gospel from the south representing the Jews to the north representing the, the Gentiles. That's right. so cool. Right. And so, yeah, so when the missile is moved to the north side, that is where the um, the gospel is read. And if you notice as well, essentially, like if you go to like a high mass where there's like deacon, subdeacon, normally the epistle will be taken or the, sorry, the missile will be taken out and brought out and uh, literally into Sometimes it's done in the nave. Uh, of sometimes it's done in the sanctuary, but they will be facing like literal north. Uh, well, not literal north, but liturgical north, uh, and not even standing at the altar itself. Um, if it's a a standard kind of your standard traditional Latin mass, the um, I don't know what you want to call it, the stand on which the the missile is placed is actually angled. Whereas like the epistle itself, when it's read at the epistle side, is just facing towards straight towards, you know, the wall, the back wall, if you will. But this is now kind of turned. East. Pardon? To the east. Right? Yeah. Right. But now this is turned essentially to face towards the, uh, the north. So a um, couple things to, to say here. The gospel is brought to the Gentiles, and the amazing thing that, again, this is not our insight, um, but from this priest, he says that uh, this priest is also like chosen to be anonymous, by the way. I have no idea what his name is for certain, but uh, what he notes is that following the incarnation— and the and the passion death and resurrection of christ right after all that happened and the jews still rejected the true faith god's divine judgment fell on the people of jerusalem and on the jewish people uh in the form of the destruction of the temple in 70 a.d so what we've been talking about kind of already i don't know if we kind of mentioned this before but all of these things, you know, that we're kind of talking about are like biblical types or typology. Um, so, so when the divine judgment fell on the Jews in 70 AD, uh, that was a type of the end of the world. Yeah, there's even that very confusing passage, right, where our Lord talks about the end of the world, but he's also talking about the destruction of the temple, like in the same in the same words you know what i mean yeah like um i don't know it well enough to quote from it but i think you guys no exactly know what i mean exactly yeah. yeah so um according to flavius josephus uh in his uh his work i think it's called the war of the jews um he wars writes of the jews yeah the wars of the jews thank you uh, he talks about the eastern gate of the temple 
uh, and how essentially it opened of its own accord the night before the uh the temple was destroyed or sorry maybe it was a couple days before i can't remember but the essentially it happened right before the dis- the temple was destroyed and one thing i found very interesting i don't know um if you kind of picked up on this but the when that when that gate opened certain populations the general population of the jews said hooray this is a sign of 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 blessings and uh things are things are going to look up for us but the learned the learned said no no this is a bad thing <laughs> this is this is really bad and shortly thereafter they got destroyed um yeah the superficial view was kind of like you know god's opening the door and he's gonna bless us or something like that yeah but those who know the symbology that surrounds that door said wait 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 i mean this is symbolic of god's strength in defending the temple and if god opens it that means he is no longer protecting us essentially yeah he's going to allow us to fall to the pagans yep he's he's essentially handed us over to our enemies um mm-hmm. i i don't know if you t- if you think this makes any sense or not but like i kind of look at it like today you know we get the coronavirus and the world's like nah it's not god's judgment you know it's just it's it's nature having a temper tantrum. All we've got to do is follow, you know, uh, more, be more ecologically minded and whatnot, and 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 things will turn around. But then the then those I don't know, like a lot of traditional Catholics are like, mm, not so sure, <laughs> not so sure. And then he sends murder bees, murder that hornets, the heads off of smaller bees. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of fishy. I mean, in general, with divine chastisement, there's got to be prudence, but not like complete skepticism, I think, right? Yeah. Some people are like, God would never chastise us ever because look at my misinterpretation of this passage from our Lord where he says, you know, this man that was born blind, it wasn't because his parents sinned or something like that. It was so that God's glory could be revealed in him being healed. That doesn't mean that divine chastisement doesn't exist. It just means that you can't judge everything that way, like you're a prosperity gospel preacher or something, right? Right. Um, so I would say prudence in judging these things, right? I mean, you don't say God must hate these people and they're sinners every time there's a tsunami or something. But then again, if there's idol worship in Rome and then Italy is devastated by a plague, you don't say there's literally a 0% chance that this is a chastisement from God. Yeah. It could be. We also can't just assume the world doesn't deserve a chastisement either a a course correction yeah 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 there's i forget who published this 
this article, there was a, a headline talking about this. Basically, the perspective on that is like, we are all sinners mm-hmm. and suffering is coming to all of us because of our sins in this life. And in that sense, you can view things in like that spiritual sense, right? Even if they're not directly caused by an intervention from God, um, you know, it might not be a miraculous imposition of a plague on the world, but it is within God's permissive will for us to suffer this. And there is in his plan a way that um, we should react to it and be changed by it, I guess. Yeah. And and that's exactly what we shouldn't forget is we absolutely are all all sinners. Mm -hmm. And from this, we can take it as an opportunity to repent, even from the smallest of sins and vices. So I, I also, going back to this door, let me let me give you another uh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. <laughs> it's time to call a council. Let's open the doors of the church to the world. Wow. There you go. There's my uh, strings on a... <laughs> on a board. A, a board with newspapers <laughs> on it theory. But um, again, the... Uh, general mass of Catholics are like, oh yeah, Vatican II, it was the best. We modernized the church. We opened everything up. Now we're not rigid anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think once again, those who understand the meaning of what was actually changed understand that this will not happen without divine punishment i think right another another interesting point i don't know that uh, if you remember this but um the priest talked about the essentially the men dressed up as women that would parade through jerusalem do you remember that yeah wasn't that crazy like what a parallel to like it just seems to happen over and over again right yeah, the the decadence and sexual sin that goes before the fall into tragedy, even of of empires throughout history, right? Crazy, right? And yeah, so I mean, shades of Sodom and Gomorrah there, um, mm-hmm. and also right. We we can look at uh, the Gospel of Saint Luke chapter. 17 verses i think it's 26 to 30 where our lord says and this is the the dewey reams says uh as it came to pass in the days of noah so shall it be in the days of the son of man that did in they did eat and drink they married wives and were given in marriage until that day that noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all likewise as it came to pass in the days of lot they did eat and drink they bought and sold, they planted and built, and in the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from the heaven and destroyed them all. 
Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man shall be revealed. So another point that, um, you know, now kind of uh, maybe switching a little bit of gears here. So just to go back and remind where we are. So we have the rejection of the true faith of the Jews and the acceptance of the Gentiles. Okay. But then at the end of the world, there is the rejection of the true faith by the Gentiles and the acceptance of the true faith by the Jews one last time. And according to Midrash, uh, this priest pointed out that um, prior to the the actual flood, I don't know if you remember this as well, that prior to the flood, um, that the they had just essentially introduced signing marriage documents, man and a man. So they had just start. They had essentially legalized gay marriage, according to Jewish midrash, right before the flood. So I don't know. Very very interesting. Um, That's a wild parallel too. <laughs> yeah, crazy, right? Couldn't believe that. So yeah, as as we've understood in church teaching, right? So the the church has always taught that essentially at the end that there will be this great apostasy right uh at which point the the jews will or sorry the gentiles will reject the true faith and it will be given back to the jews so the gentiles reject it and the jews accept it according to second thessalonians chapter 2 Verse, verse 3 it says, uh, I think this is it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for unless there come a revolt first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Right. So, before before the end, there will be that revelation. Or, sorry, that will, before, before the revelation of the Antichrist, um, which the church does teach, okay, will exist. Has existed, antichrists have existed in the past, but there will be a definitive antichrist at the end. But before that, there will be the great apostasy of the Gentiles, um, who will leave the faith, who will abandon the faith, and return back to paganism. So maybe we can point that out too. Uh, another point that that priest made, that when when the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, right, the world was ruled outside of Israel, was ruled by paganism. Everywhere, everywhere was pagan. And how miraculous was it that suddenly, like wildfire, the the gospel is proclaimed to the nations and the nations accept it. I mean, yeah, there were a ton of martyrs, okay? But I mean, it wasn't just a lock, stock, and barrel. Everybody signed up, you know, on the dotted line for, uh, <laughs> for baptism. But the church exploded with with new members, and what a miracle that was that that happened, and how crazy. I mean, in our in our modern minds, how crazy is it to think that the Gentiles will reject the faith? You know, we're so used to our Gentile Christianity, but and yet we see that rejection taking place. Mm-hmm. Like it's very possible that 
this time in history that we're living in is the middle of that rejection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, even this priest who, who uh, did this, this homily was saying that during the great apostasy, the Gentiles will return to paganism. Right. He will. And this, this homily was posted in 2017, long, long before the Pachamama incident could have even been envisioned in our minds right but, but here after a cc yeah true true <laughs> word word yeah but still i mean we didn't bow down and worship an idol in a cc yeah it's it's a whole different degree although it's somewhat similar in kind absolutely i agree with that point but yeah so the the return to paganism by the Gentiles. Um, so how, how will the Gentiles be separated from the true faith? They'll be separated by apostasy and heresy. Um, they will also be separated from obedience to the Pope. So by disobedience and schism. Now, do you remember Chris, if there's um, a liturgical parallel with this latter part of salvation history well i mean the the missile is taken back after the gospel is read and returned to the epistle side of the altar where it remains right i i missed that in the talk but of course yeah so um so again the rejection of the true faith by the jews the acceptance of the gentiles of the true faith, the rejection of the true faith by the Gentiles and the acceptance of the true faith by the Jews. So, I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, yeah. Are we living in these times? Who knows for sure. But I mean, if I hadn't looked at the date, I would have assumed he was talking like right now. Yeah. I remember doing a double take, like, what? 2017? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he has no idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, he's speaking and has no idea what things have happened in the church. Yep. So, I mean, Jerusalem has been ruled by the Gentiles, and it will be ruled by the Gentiles until the end. Sorry, did I say the Jews? I meant Jerusalem will be ruled by the Gentiles until the end. Right now, it's run by the Saracens. Is that racist to say? But yeah, it's... Well, it's... I mean, it's run by a secular state currently. Yeah. So, I don't know how you classify that. Ethnically, there's a lot of Jews, but it's not a Jewish state. It's an atheist state. Yeah. And and I mean, the Dome of the Rock still sits on the place of the temple, right? Yeah. So. In that sense, it is the temple is still under Muslim rule in a sense, right? Right. I don't know if it's Saracen, because aren't Saracens a specific Muslim empire? I don't know. I think I think they are, or they were historically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've never be I never proposed to be a smart man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just after listening to that, I mean it 
it's so cool to see that beautiful eschatological symbology, if you will, during the mass mm-hmm. played out right in front of you. Um, mm-hmm. Seeing the the missile go back and forth, and you're like, "Oh yeah," you know. It's also. Sorry, do you want to go first? Yeah, you can go first. Okay. I'll remember to come back to you after. (laughs) One thing I wanted to say was that, like, just being reminded of this whole plan for the end times, um, it's actually kind of a comfort in these times to think that, you know, this isn't something that um is a disproof of our faith or anything like that if we see like christendom falling away from the faith we know that this is a thing that has to happen at some point in history and if it happens in our time that doesn't mean that the faith is not true right i mean it's always been known and prophesied from the very beginning that almost everyone would fall away from the faith and there would only be a remnant left. So that should be an encouragement to us to cling fast to our faith and to aim to be a part of that remnant. If in fact we are in that period of the church's history where the Gentiles are losing the faith for the most part. Mm-hmm. Maybe just an addendum before before we we get Brooks insight, something that I forgot to mention, but I think it's really important during the reading of the gospel, right? So when the uh, missile is brought to the north side of the altar, what do we do as the faithful, right? We stand up. We stand mm-hmm. up in to show our readiness to act on the word of God. Um, the priest at this point too removes his beretta, right? If if he wears one, it depends on whose priest you got, but or what priest you got. But um, <laughs> if your priest likes to wear a beretta during his Latin mass, uh, then you'll see that he removes the beretta at this point, which is to mystically signify that the mysteries of, of redemption have been revealed, that the veil has been lifted. And that we see in, you know, when we, when we stand at attention during the gospel, that's a reminder to us and should be a reminder to us that we should be ready to act on the word of God, that we're not just listeners, but doers, because we don't want to be that, those deceived uh, souls that, who end up apostatizing, who uh, the seed falls on rocky ground and is choked up by you know the weeds or whatever you know like we want to be those who where the word of god falls into good fertile soil so that it bears good fruit so um yeah be grateful especially at that reading of the gospel stand there with pride um not the sin of pride of course but um stand there with pride be grateful pedro <laughs> yeah. Today's today's gospel is especially delicious. <laughs> anyway, that's just let's my, not, my Let's not miss Brooks' point though. 
yeah. go back to what you were going to say. So maybe I missed it, but I was going to ask in the Novo Sordo, the gospel book, right? Is processed forward, mm-hmm. placed on the altar. Nine times out of 10, it's usually the lector that carries it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's placed on the altar. And then when the priest is going to read from the gospel, a separate book was used for all the other readings is removed from the side ambo. And then the gospel is carried, you know, held up by the priest and placed on the ambo and then back on the altar again. What was the reasoning for that? I don't know. I think after reading, it's not placed back on the altar, right? No, it's not. No. No, it's not. Okay. That book with the gospels in it goes off to the side somewhere. And then the, uh, Missal or sacramentary or whatever it's it's called that he's actually reading from during the liturgy of the Eucharist is placed on the altar, ah. right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's different books. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, at least in terms of um, justification, you probably will hear the same kind of um, antiquarianism. That's often the case with new mass stuff. I, I have read, you can see in Catholic encyclopedia and some other places like in the early church, the, uh, at some point, I don't know exactly when it changed, but there were gospel and epistle readings from the Ambo sometimes in basilicas. So I wonder if that's kind of the, you know, that same kind of theme where we got to look back at the early church and pick out whatever they're doing and stick it in, you know, so just move all the readings to the Ambo. It seems like the kind of thing. Did that, have time, some, right? did that have something more to do with like architecture or was there a specific purpose into having the, the use of an Ambo? This is a genuine yeah, question. I'm not I don't sure. Know. Okay. Just looking at like a, I have just up here, coincidentally, the article on Ambos, because I was researching some of this stuff um, from Catholic Encyclopedia. And it does talk about how some early basilicas, they, they had like the first Ambos and they used to chant the gospel and epistle there and preach from there. Yeah, I wonder if it's kind of a thing that the church developed over time where they maybe in some places developed this symbology of moving the missile around and it caught on and stuff like that. That's how a lot of things were in the early church where there were more differences and stuff like that. Things were different regionally before, especially before Gregory the Great right when he did the first kind of standardization of the missile so that's just all kind of theorizing off the top of my head i am really not qualified to answer that question but here i I am the guy on the podcast (laughs) i uh just a random side note i read from the i don't know if there's what the equivalent is in the new germ but uh according to the old germ anytime that You've got somebody like a commentator or a cantor or somebody who's going to read announcements. They're never 
supposed to do that from the ambo because it's supposed to be strictly for the word of God, um, which is, I mean, in a way, very good, uh, considering it is, con- you know, called the altar of the word. But uh, yeah, how many parishes do that? I don't know. I think it depends. I remember at our old home parish, they added like another spot later. Right. Yeah, I think that's a thing that some Novus Ordo parishes started doing recently. Yeah, like adding a a second spot. <laughs> and and again, it depends. And again, it depends on the construction of the building and when it was built. But I remember growing up, it was always announcements before mass from the Ambo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the, the opposite from our parish, our current parish. They used to have a commentator place on the other side, a nice wood, yeah, like lectern, gone, gone. It had like some carvings in it and stuff. It was kind of nice. It was more simple than the ambo, but it was similar, gone. Well, so. Do they now do that all from the ambo? Yes. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think that whole reserving it only for the word of God is. A, it's never being followed, and B, it's kind of an innovation. And I'll tell you why, because the sermon is not the word of God. The sermon is always preached from the ambo. That is its primary purpose. Um, <laughs> even in the traditional Latin mass, mm-hmm. that's all we use the ambo for is the sermon. It's not the word of God. That's the word of the priest. So, Really, if you're going to be consistent, you should be kicking the priest off the ambo when it's time for his sermon and not by making him wander around the church, preferably. Yes. But the rule, <laughs> the actual rule is that he's supposed to be on the ambo, right? Yes. So what even is this rule? It's completely contradictory. Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> Does anyone else get uncomfortable when the priest walks down and yes. starts chit-chatting? Yes. Hate that. Yes. It's very awkward. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I used to think it was so cool, though. Like, I remember as a kid being like, oh, yeah. Like, so relatable. Nothing. And Jesus had, like, a spot. You know, he he was, like, up on top of a hill. Or if there were too many people <laughs> out in a boat. One mm-hmm. spot. Not standing, you know, not walking around. So you get people, and you can hear, but then he goes back, and they can hear him again. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of the mobile microphone that's enabled this. It's a very like novel behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like for the rest of church history, you can't wander away from the ambo while you're preaching, or no one can hear you. True, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at this the new Advent link too. Is it says that, uh, as in the case of St. John Chrysostom, who Socrates says was accustomed to mount the ambo to address the people in order to be more distinctly heard. So it did have a functional. Okay, wait a second. We need to find out who Socrates is in this article because it's not the Greek philosopher Socrates. Absolutely not. (laughs) But I do, I do fully understand the idea that it was built up. So projection. Okay, pardon my click, because I'm clicking on this Socrates thing. We need to know who it is. A historian. A historian of the early church at Constantinople, towards the end of the 4th century. 
Huh. Okay. Today I learned. <laughs> There's more than one Socrates. Okay. Okay. I was, I was looking at a like BS Catholic encyclopedia. <laughs> Socrates did not commentary on commentate on what Saint John Chrysostom did. <laughs> that is not true. Uh, good times, oh, guys. Man. Yeah. There you go. So, so that's the mystical significance of the missal. It was completely butchered, and I do apologize. I know it was more piecemeal than anything, but now again, that you've heard our unprofessional commentary on it. Go listen to the actual sermon. Yeah, do it, do it. It's so much more eloquent than we could ever hope or plan to be. But you know, if anything you take yeah. away, just remember the rejection of the true faith by the Jews, the acceptance of the true faith by the Gentiles. The rejection of the truth faith by the Gentiles, acceptance of the true faith by the Jews. That's it. God likes symmetry. So Yeah. If you remember one more thing, it's um versus populum, not even once. <laughs> exactly. Or can I just listen to that um Lawrence England cover the other day? Turn around, where he's got <laughs> Cardinal Sarah saying, "Turn around, <laughs> sacred little juice bun in a pot." Love it's that guy. So good. Love that guy. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, any other final clo- closing thoughts before we we end this puppy? This is great. Awesome. You guys are great. You're, You're great. great. If you've made it this far. I don't know how you did it. I'm proud of you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for learning with us. Yeah. yeah. We are not um, credible sources, but the people who we quoted are. Yes. Yes. Truth. Truth. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Next week, we've got Kristen Von Cleff talking to us about the, uh, in honor of uh, vocational diversity, where we have a secular Franciscan hanging out with us talking about what it's like to be a secular Franciscan. And if Mike's good, we might have a secular Dominican come on the show. So he's got to be nice though. He's got to be a nice to, to this Carmelite, you know, not going to (laughs) happen. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's end it. So thank you to all our friends for listening to today's podcast. We're really glad that you joined us. If you have not yet, we would love for you to subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you listen to the greatest of podcasts. If you are a fan of social media, we'd love for you to give us a follow. Come check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Theology of the Buddy. If you want to send us an email, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at theologyofthebuddy at gmail.com. If you would like to check out all of our previous episodes and our show notes, you can find those at theologyofthebuddy.com. Like I said before, next week we're talking about the vocation to the secular Franciscan order. So make sure you're subscribed so you'll know when it comes out. Episodes are released every Wednesday. So until then, stay Stay tratty. tratty.